morning, everyone. Um, my name is Stacy, and I'll be reading today's scripture, which is from Acts chapter 18. So would you please join me? After Paul addressed the Athenians, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a, name, of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your, comp your, your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Thank you very much for sharing the word of the Lord with us, Stacy. Uh, it's a great encouragement to be reminded through scripture, through the scripture that was just read, that our God is indeed a God of encouragements. Now, Paul, he had taken quite a few beatings for the sake of the gospel, and God appears to Paul in a vision when he's tempted to quit. He encourages Paul to stay in the race with the words, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Now, in a movie that some of you may be familiar with, a movie called Chariots of Fire, there's a scene where this champion sprinter named Harold Abrahams, he suffers this crushing defeat on the track, and in despair, he kind of sulks off alone into the bleachers to mope, and his girlfriend comes over to encourage him, and he shouts, he lashes out at her. He says, I don't run to take beatings. If I can't win, I won't run. And she wisely replies, if you don't run, you can't win. Now, I'm sure that there were days when Paul felt like quitting and pulling out of his race. He had a lot of reasons to quit. He was repeatedly rejected by his brothers, the Jews. He was chased from one city to the next. He was stoned and left for dead. That's what Paul had suffered so far for the sake of the gospel, and it was only going to get much and much more difficult. In fact, at the finish line 
of Paul's race, he would be called to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. Now, at this early point in Paul's ministry, he was already facing great opposition. And even though he was often successful in his mission, even his victories came at a great cost. Now, it's easy for us to look back on Paul now, seeing all that he accomplished in his mission, and see him as this invincible super apostle, totally immune to any discouragement. That's unrealistic. Paul was human. He was just like us. And like Harold Abrahams, Paul must have been tempted to stop running the race because of the beatings that he had taken. Now, in the book of Acts, in the passage that Stacy just read for us, maybe as a courtesy to Paul, his friend Luke, the author of Acts, he kindly omits Paul's state of mind when he arrives in Corinth. It just says he arrived in Corinth. He left Athens and arrived in Corinth. But Paul himself gives himself no such courtesy. In Paul's own words that he will write later to the church he planted at Corinth, he describes how he was feeling when he left Athens and arrived in Corinth. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, Paul had just left the city of Athens after having dealt with extreme culture shock. Athens was this hub of pagan worship. They were devoted to bowing down to idols. Now, as we heard last week from Pastor Brent, it was easier to find a god, a false god in Athens, than it was to find another person. There were literally 30,000 idols to bow down to. And the people of Athens, they were just being smothered by idolatry. And as we read last week, Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul was consumed with zeal. He couldn't stay silent. He had to share that the unknown God that they were worshiping just in case they forgot a God was in fact the one true God. Paul could not stay quiet. But even though he was empowered and moved by the spirit of God, even though he was compelled by concern, for the lost in that city, Paul was still human. And it must have been absolutely exhausting, grueling to be immersed in a culture that was so far removed from anything that Paul had ever known. Can you imagine that culture shock? So remember Paul, who was formerly known as Saul, he was absolutely steeped in the Jewish lifestyle. He described himself as being circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. And that was Paul. He was as Jewish as they come. And here he was in Athens, of all places, an absolute culture shock. And now he had left all that and arrived in Corinth. So if you're familiar with the phrase, out of the frying pan and into the fire, that's what it was like for Paul. Now, Corinth was a large city. It was a powerful city. It was, it was rich. But what Corinth was really known for in the ancient world is that it was absolutely chock full of immorality. So to get, a, to get an idea or a picture of, cult, of the culture of Corinth in your mind, think about the worst of New York City's um, materialism combined with the worst of Washington, D.C.'s power struggle, and on top of that, the worst of Las Vegas's debauchery. And you have an idea of what ancient Corinth was like. In fact, that city was so morally debased that ancient Greek philosophers like Plato, he used the word Corinthian and prostitute interchangeably, meant the same thing to the people of the ancient world. So to be called the Corinthian was to be called a person of loose morals. 
That's where Paul was ministering to this Jew of the Jew uh, in weakness and fear and in much trembling. So try to put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a minute. Imagine the most upright, holy church member that you know being dropped off on the doorstep of the most depraved city in the world with no church community to plug into. And you have an idea of what Paul must have been dealing with. But God was quick to send encouragement and help. Now in verse 2 we read, And Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, because he was of the same trade, and he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So we meet Aquila and Priscilla, this faithful, godly couple. And as Jews, they had been chased out of Rome. They had been victims of persecution, just like Paul had been. And just like Paul, they knew what it was to try to live a godly life in a city like Corinth. And so they were quick to show him hospitality. And they assisted Paul. They gave him a place to stay. They, they likely used their business connections to get him set up um, as a tent maker to help Paul make his living. They are perfect examples of how people who are not full-time ministers themselves can further work of the Lord. They had hands, they had hearts, they had homes devoted to the work of the gospel. And their situation of being in Corinth in the first place is a perfect example of how God uses even persecution. Um, And persecution is not outside the sovereign plan of the Lord. If they had not been forced out of Rome by persecution, they would have not been where God needed them to be in, in that place to receive Paul when he arrived. God uses persecution for the good of the spreading of the gospel. If God hadn't forced believers out of Jerusalem, the gospel wouldn't have left Jerusalem. There's a Greek word uh, called diaspora, and it means to scatter about. And that's exactly what God used persecution to do. Believers were scattered about the region, and they were spreading the gospel as they went. And now the fire of the gospel, blown by the winds of persecution, it had made, had made its way all the way into the wicked city of Corinth. Now that image that you can just see there, it's, it's a picture of a flaming dandelion. And, um, you know, we should have explained that, that image earlier. I had someone ask me recently why there was a picture of a flaming marshmallow on the screen. So if you're waiting for the text when Paul makes s'mores around the campfire, you're, you're not going to get to it. That may be in 3 Corinthians, maybe. I'm not really sure. Um, but the image we chose is a dandelion on fire. The gospel is the fire. Those little seeds that fly around, they represent the people and the wind of persecution, just like a wind blows dandelion seeds everywhere. The winds of persecution take the gospel wherever God wants it to go. And Priscilla and Killa were like like those seeds. They had been sovereignly led by God through persecution to Corinth. And just like God used Paul's new friends to provide hospitality and a safe haven for him in a strange land, God is still moving people from place to place all around the globe. And he's using hospitable people like Priscilla and Aquila today to assist in the spreading of the gospel. As an example of that, um, just a, a couple of months ago, I had this young lady call up the church. She was from out of state, and she was getting ready to start her freshman year at a, a local college campus, Um, and she was concerned about finding a community 
of believers. She was about to be far from home, probably for the first time, um, facing all that goes along with living on a secular college campus, um, probably feeling a little bit like Paul felt when he arrived in Corinth. And as we talked, I was able to share about, you know, the church community that we have. And I was able to talk about the intervarsity presence, the student presence that is on our local campuses. And I could just sense the relief that she was feeling. I'm sure she felt like Paul did when he found Priscilla and Aquila, this safe haven, uh, a place for encouragement, a place for connection in this really dark and unknown waters. And that's not just happening in our college ministry, um, but that kind of welcome also happens when our youth group workers welcome kids into the youth group or the blast ministry or kids church. Um, when our first impressions ministry welcomes people coming through the door, not sure what to expect. Uh, when a grieving widow is, is welcomed to grief share or when a hurting individual seeking recovery is welcomed to celebrate recovery. Um, Whenever your gift of hospitality is used, whether it's within the walls of the church or without, God can use your welcome for the sake of the gospel to refresh a wearied, worried stranger. Carry on in that mission of hospitality, that tradition of hospitality that Priscilla and Aquila set. And I know that you're probably not thinking of yourselves like that. You're not walking, you're walking around patting yourselves on the back um, you're just doing what God has gifted you to do through the Holy Spirit for the sake of the church and for the sake of the lost. Um, but let me encourage you with the reminder, because you're not patting yourselves on the back, just like Priscilla and Aquila had no idea of the world-altering impact that their house guest was about to have for the sake of the gospel. Today, God can do more than you could ever ask or imagine through his power at work in you, in us and that includes simple acts of hospitality done for the sake of the gospel. And even those little things that are done according to his power, even those things that are so small that we've forgotten them, God hasn't forgotten them. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Now, I don't know exactly what the final judgment is going to look like, but I hope I get to overhear some of the discussions that Jesus is having with some of you. Now, at the final judgment, in Matthew 25, Jesus will say to the righteous, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And the righteous will answer him, Who, us? Are you talking to me? When did I see you? When did I see you as a stranger, and when did I welcome you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, the most vulnerable, the most in need of welcome and shelter, you did it for me. There is no such thing as a small act of hospitality for the sake of the gospel. Even the things that are so small that we've forgotten them, God has not forgotten them. All right, back to our text in Acts. Um, Paul also had encouragement from others beyond his newfound friends in Priscilla and Aquila. It says in verse 5 that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, as encouraging as I'm sure their friendly presence was, they also came bearing gifts. 
Paul records this in 2 Corinthians. He says, when I was with you, Corinthians, and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, meaning Silas and Timothy, they supplied what I needed. And now Paul was able to go about the work, the mission, full time because of the support that, re- that he received. It says in verse 5 that Paul was occupied with the word. So he was able to put his trade of tent making aside and he was able to make the gospel, his, mo- his vocation. Paul was now a full-time ministry thanks to the support that Timothy and Silas had brought from the church in Macedonia. He was occupied with the word. He preached the good news of Jesus Christ to the Jews. And how did that go? Well, predictably, it did not go well. It says in verse 6, And when they, the Jews, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. It's like going like this. It's like enough of that. He said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. That's exactly what he did. The Jews rejected the gospel, and he simply continued the ministry of the word to the Gentiles. And Paul had great success, as we're about to read. It says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, these Gentiles, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul was back in business. Things were going well. And this verse, the next verse we get to, may seem a little bit out of place because things were actually starting to go well. It says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Well, I wouldn't be afraid. Things were going well. It says, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. So if things were going so well, why would God need to appear to Paul and tell him to not be afraid? Well, I think it's because Paul had been down this road once or twice. Paul knew by now all too well that success meant that he would have a target right on his back. Soon there was going to be a riot and a public beating and he was going to be thrown in jail. There may be an attempt on his life. It was all it was all too predictable. Paul had learned through hard experience that success goes hand in hand with persecution. So Paul was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. God's appearance to Paul, it reminds us that Nobody, not even even the great apostle Paul is immune to fear or immune to discouragement. He had some battle scars. And we too, we all have limitations. We all have times of weakness. Uh, When depression gets the best of us, when our hurts and hangups and seasons of doubt just overcome us and we are just struggling. So I think that we all need to hear the words of encouragement that God gives to Paul in this passage. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. We all need to be reminded that God is on his throne. When um, Martin Luther, the great Protestant church reformer, was facing discouragement, his wife Catherine, she needed to find a way to remind Martin that God was alive and well and on his throne. And the story of of her encouragement has been put into a brief poem. I'll share that with you. It's written, One day when skies loom blackest, this greatest and bravest of men lost heart and in an oversad spirit refused to take courage again, neither eating nor drinking to anxious wife or nor speaking to anxious wife, children or friends, till Catherine dons her widow's garments 
in the deepest of mourning, she pretends. Surprised, Luther asked her why she sorrowed. Dear doctor, his Katie replied, I have cause for the saddest of weeping, for God in his heaven has died. Her gentle rebuke did not fail him. He laughingly kissed his wise spouse, took courage, banished his sorrow, and joy reigned again in that house. And in the same way, God needed to get Paul's attention. He needed to part the clouds and say, hey, Paul, I'm still with you. I'm still here on my throne. I'm not dead. I'm not weak. Don't be afraid, Paul. Keep at it. I'm still with you. Go on teaching. Go on speaking. I'll make sure that you have everything that you need, including the protection you need to accomplish what I'm calling you to do. And that's exactly what happened. After the vision, we read, and he stayed here a year and six months in Corinth, teaching the word of God among them. And of course, Paul lived happily ever after. Well, no, not quite, not quite. God's encouragement to Paul was about to be put to use. There was predictably a threat brewing. Now, evidently, there was this new ruler of the synagogue, and his name is Sosthenes. So maybe Crispus, the former ruler that we just read about, that Paul led to Christ, he was probably run out of town by the Jews um, for his faith. Not really sure, it doesn't say, but any, in, any, in any case, there's this new Jewish leader of the synagogue. And they hatch a Paul. They hatch a plot against Paul. And this is what happened. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And they drove them from the, from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So what's happening here is Sosthenes, this new ruler of the synagogue, he had a plan to deal with Paul. He incited a united Jewish attack against Paul. But Gallio, the, the proconsul, who was the civilian governor of Achaia, he didn't want to get involved. He was being politically savvy. And even though he was serving his own self-interest, he was still the instrument that God used to fulfill his promise to protect Paul. No one will attack. No one will attack you to harm you. Gallio had dismissed the case. He didn't want anything to do with it. But the Jews, they were out for blood. And if they couldn't have Paul's blood, they would settle for the one who had hatched this failed plot in the first place. So in the ultimate backfire, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. So the evil that Sosthenes had planned for Paul had fallen back on himself. Paul had entrusted himself to, to the protection of the Lord. And Paul was living out the words of King David in Psalm 141. See if you can see similarities between David's prayer and Paul's situation. It says, But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and keep me from the snare of the evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Now, Sosthenes had fallen into his own net 
And Paul's foe was bloodied and bruised. And just like it says in the psalm, Paul passed on by safely. And I can't help but wonder what Paul's attitude would have been as he passed on by safely, just walking by Sosthenes, bruised and bloodied. Give him a quick kick. (laughs) Take that, sucker. That would be a, a perfectly logical and fleshly response. Justice was done. You know, so why not rejoice? But was that Paul's response? Well, it doesn't say. It doesn't say anything here. It just says in verse 18 that after this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And Paul continued on to minister in Corinth for about 18 months. And during that time, I'm sure Paul would have bumped into Sosthenes, you know, whether at the synagogue or at the markets. It would have been awkward. You know, you see, see each other coming, you just kind of go like this and pass by. You know, what were those encounters like? How was Paul, how was Paul supposed to respond to his enemy, to his adversary? Well, we'll hold Paul to his own words. Paul told the church in Corinth, in Corinth, where all this had happened, so they knew the situation. He said, when reviled, we bless. But after all the abuse that Paul had taken for the sake of the gospel, not just from Sosthenes, but from all that had already happened, all the beatings, all the the stonings, all the imprisonings, all the conspiracies and attempts on his life, did Paul have it within him to practice what he had preached? It doesn't say. (laughs) Or does it? Or does it? Uh, Time for some audience participation. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're in the book of Acts right now. I'm going to ask you to turn a few pages forward to the book of 1 Corinthians. So it goes Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Um, Make sure you don't get 2 Corinthians because this won't make any sense if you're in 2 Corinthians. We're looking for chapter 1, verse 1, right off the bat. The reason I'm asking you to, to do this is I think that it's more rewarding to find this little hidden Easter egg ourselves um, before just throwing it up on the screen. So 1 Corinthians 1, 1. This is the introduction of the letter, the first letter he's writing to the Corinthian church. Paul is identifying that he's the author of the letter. And in the greeting um, that many of us read a hundred times without giving the second thought, myself included, until I did some research, um, Paul was identifying a co-author or a scribe. What does it say? It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother, Sosthenes. Now, we don't know exactly what happened between Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 1, but Sosthenes has gone from being a bitter enemy of Paul, who tried to have him arrested for preaching Jesus, to becoming our brother, Sosthenes. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, this isn't a new concept to you. And oh, how we try and oh, how we fail, if we're being honest. But we try time and time again through clenched teeth. Love my enemy, love my enemy, I'm going to do it. As if we can just force ourselves to love the unlovely. But Paul did it. And if Paul can make a brother of one who plotted his murder, then why can't we love someone who mildly irritates us? You know, what does Paul know that we don't? Well, 
I think Paul's secret is that he lived by the truth of Jesus's words in Luke 7, 47. He was forgiven little, loves little. The first step in being able to love our enemies is to remember that we were once enemies of God ourselves and he forgave us. We love because he first loved us. Paul remembered that he had done far worse to others than Sosthenes had done to him. You know, Paul was happy to accept the the responsibility for the murder of Stephen. Just 10 chapters ago, it says that Paul, formerly Saul, was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It also says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What Sosthenes had tried and failed to do to him, Paul had done, had succeeded in doing to others. But Paul was a changed man. The good news of Jesus Christ changes people. And so it is the power of the gospel and not the power of our own wills that allows us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. So I want you to consider who is the Sosthenes in your life? Remember that as you deal with this person, as you wrestle with trying to love your enemy, that by the power of the gospel, the one who reviles you today may tomorrow be the one who is serving shoulder to shoulder with you. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. The proof is right there in 1 Corinthians. And that is what amazing grace looks like. But we can't give this kind of love. We can't give this kind of grace and forgiveness if we haven't received it first ourselves. So how do we receive it? Well, we look to Christ. We look to the only innocent man who ever lived. We look to the one who took the sin of the world upon his shoulders and paid the sin debt that each of us owe. He paid it with his life. That's exactly what he was doing on the cross. That's what his cross accomplished. All of us have sinned. All of us. And the punishment for sin is death. But Christ stepped in. Christ took that punishment. He stepped in front of that bullet in our place. And the punishment, the wrath of God against sin fell on him instead of us. And he died. And he was laid in the tomb. Justice against sin had been served. He paid the debt that we all owe. And by faith, we can accept the verdict of not guilty. So are you feeling guilty? over the bad things that you have done, the sins against God and against others, well, then take it to the cross. The payment that Jesus made for your sins is more than enough. Accept his forgiveness. And in the eyes of the only judge whose verdict matters, you are now declared innocent. And if you're innocent, you're no longer under the death sentence of sin. Just like the innocence of Jesus broke the power of sin and death and he walked out of that tomb, by faith in the sinless one dying in your place, you're going to share in that exact same resurrection. Your sin has been removed. And just like the grave couldn't hold Jesus Christ, you too will arise to eternal life. Paul, he knew that his sin had been forgiven. Death had no hold on him. And being 
given such a great and undeserved gift of eternal life, well, that put the petty grudge that he would have been tempted to hold against Sosthenes into a new light. Paul did not need to count Sosthenes' sins against him because God no longer counted Paul's sins against him. You do not need to count your enemies' sins against you because God no longer counts your sins against you. That is how we love our enemies and do good to those who hate us by remembering that that is exactly what God did for us. That is how we become what Paul calls ministers of reconciliation. He says in 2 Corinthians, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, to be a minister of reconciliation, that's just to take the grace that God has given to you and pay it forward to someone else. Scatter the seeds of the gospel. Scatter them in grace and in peace and in mercy and in forgiveness, even to our enemies. And do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. The phrase, I have many in the city who are my people. Uh, The first time I read that, I thought that it meant that Paul would be safe because there were currently a lot of Christians in Corinth. But there weren't. Paul was just getting started. Now, this verse actually means that there were many people in the city that God had marked out for salvation. So the encouragement for Paul was that God had a purpose for this city. And God, in his sovereignty, he would use Paul to bring it to fruition. Paul's labor would be guarded by God himself, and it would not be in vain. The Holy Spirit was going forward, convicting people of sin. Some of the Corinthians, they were tired of the depravity. They were tired of the emptiness of their souls. So that was ancient Corinth. What about modern-day Waterville? Does God have people in this city, in Waterville, that need to hear the message of Jesus Christ dying for their sins, raising from the grave again to offer eternal life? Of course, God has people that he will use us, his ministers of reconciliation to reach. So don't be afraid, don't be silent, because God has many in this city that he has marked out for salvation, and God will give you the encouragement that you need to reach the end of your race. He's going to give you grace for the race that he has called you to run. Remember Harold Abraham's, I don't run to take beatings. If I can't run, if I can't win, I won't run. Well, he did take his girlfriend's encouragement and he stayed in the race and he went on to win Olympic gold. And Paul, he pressed on as well. He pressed on through defeat, through discouragement, through the trauma, through the exhaustion. Paul knew that he was chasing something so much more valuable than Olympic golds. And at the end of his race, Paul had no regrets. He tells Timothy, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but to also all those who loved his appearing. 
as the, the worship team makes its way up front, uh, let me close and say that our race, our race is to carry the torch of the gospel. And the reward that is ahead, this crown of righteousness is worth far more than any suffering that we're going to encounter. So we can press forward into our city. We can press forward into Waterville knowing that God has marked people out for salvation. We can press forward knowing that God goes before us to prepare um, safe harbors, encouragements, um, hospitality through people like Priscilla and Nikila, through Silas and Timothy's, these safe havens of friendship and support along the way. And we can press forward knowing that he goes before us to prepare hearts to hear the gospel. He is arranging situations. He is preparing divine appointments for us, his ministers of reconciliation. And we don't need to fear because we are not alone. God is with us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we do not have to live in fear. God, I thank you that you are with us in the most trying of circumstances, even in the most seemingly godless of places. God, you remind us that there are, in fact, no godless places because where you send us, you are there as well with us. And we thank you for those unbreakable words of promise and encouragement, words of comfort, those words, I am with you. Lord, we're sorry. We're so sorry when we doubt your goodness towards us. We're sorry for when our fear gets in the way. Um, God, I ask that you would give us faith to repent and believe that you are for us, Lord. God, help us to, to see and believe that you truly are with us. Help us to see your care in the hospitality of new friends. Um, help us to see your provision in the generosity of our old friends. And help us to see you in the protection and the deliverance that you provide through your sovereign will and your mighty hand at work. And Lord, help us to see that all this encouragement, all this encouragement, provision, and protection, it's not really about us in the end, but above all, it's about spreading your fame. It's about proclaiming your greatness. So Lord, give us opportunities to do just that. God, even give us chances to show your love to those who oppose us, to those who hate us, because that's exactly what you did for us. Lord, according to your word, um, those who love your appearing will be awarded a crown of righteousness at the end of our race. And while we eagerly look forward to that crown, God, we know that an even greater pleasure will be to bow down and to lay that crown back at your feet. And any goodness that are, that's in us, it originates from you anyway. So you are the only one worthy of praise and honor and worship. It's your name that's above all other names merciful, mighty Lord, and all worship belongs to you and you alone. So may you be pleased with our worship today, Lord. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.